0: From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: Mike Cortez, we burned the boat and we are not going back to fee-for-service churn and burn model.
0: That's David Hetfield talking about the impact of value-based care on the provider experience. We'll hear more from David later in this episode all about value-based care. We'll also talk to Michael O'Connell about a team-based care approach, Andrea Herto about the risk involved, and a writer Roman about implementing successful strategies. That's all coming up, but first, a word from our sponsor. The number of complex regulations impacting healthcare practices is staggering, including everything from proper waste management and drug disposal to preserving patient privacy and data security. With over 30 years of expertise in compliance services and solutions, Stericycle is ready to help healthcare practices make compliance simple so you can focus on what matters, your patients. From reliable waste management services to 24/7 online compliance training and resources, our experts have you covered. To see how Stericycle can ensure your practice remains safe, secure, and compliant, visit stericycle.com/reliability. The popularity of value-based care is indeed on the rise. A study from earlier this year shows that 48 states are now implementing value-based care or payment programs, a seven-fold increase over the last five years. Here to discuss successful strategies for navigating value-based care is Arita Roman, Vice President for Value-Based Strategies at Humana. Arita, what are the biggest benefits in making the switch from fee-for-service?
2: You know, if you look at fee for service reimbursement, and it's been the dominant form of reimbursement to providers for almost every payer uh, until the past few years, the, the issue with it is it's, at a mo- it's a model that is costly and it really only addresses the immediate needs of patients inside the clinical setting. There's no incentive for long term sustainable health improvements or preventative care measures. We feel that value-based payment models provide incentives that allow physicians and provider groups to spend more time with their patients, provides investment in a clinical team that has more of an ability to address the clinical and social needs of their patient population. And all of that helps improve outcomes and reduce costs. At since twenty fourteen, we at Humana have measured and reported health outcomes for our patients that are affiliated with physicians practicing in Valley-based care. And what we found in those results are really favorable. We found increased rates of preventative care and screenings. We see lower incidences of emergency room visits and hospital admissions, and we see improved keto scores for practices that participate with us for Valley-based relationships. and. Last but not least, um, we are seeing that PCP practices that have value-based payment agreements with Humana for their Medicare Advantage lives are receiving more of the healthcare dollar. For example, in 2019, um, we were able to report that PCPs, value-based PCPs received 16.8% of every dollar spent on their attributed patients' care as compared to 6.9% for our non-value-based PCP. So, where we think that there are additional investments and opportunities, we are seeing that materialize in the payments that providers receive.
0: hmm So, what are the biggest barriers then to success? in moving to value-based care. So you've painted a great picture then um, of why you should adopt it, but what, there are still some barriers. What are those?
2: Yeah, and I'll, and I'll cover a few because uh, we, we could have a much longer session today, but I'll cover some of the key ones. One is the infrastructure of the provider group. Do, do they have the ability to invest both time and resources, for a future ROI, if you look at value-based models, most of them do provide, um, you know, investments and incentives early in the relationship. But what you find is as the relationship grows, as the amount of success grows, that ROI and that investment really starts uh, working for the provider group and the Early stages, a lot of those investments are, are going into infrastructure building. So they've got to have the, the, again, the ability to invest both time and resources in getting it kicked off the ground. Another the thing that's very important is what the capability is of the payer you're going to be working with. You know, one of the things that, that I found both in my payer and my provider experience is there's no one size fits all of this is what a value-based care model should be it's really important that the providers and the payer really understand where the provider is and how do you structure a contract that makes sense for the where the provider is today not where you want them to be five years from now if you if you set too aggressive of a contract it is very hard for them to be successful and then the third is providers have have the ability to address a lot of complexity. As, as complex as fee for service is, you provide a service, you bill for the service that you provided. In a in a value based world, there's a lot that happens. Um, a lot of uh, wraparound services that providers wind up providing that it, it is not as easy as you did something, you build for it. Um, and also every contract is a little bit different. So having the organizational bandwidth to kind of understand the arrangements you have and making sure that you can manage them is, is sometimes another barrier for providers.
0: Right, it does seem like there's so many moving parts to getting it set up and I, I could see how it could be a little bit overwhelming for a practice who's initially trying to make that move. So what advice would you give to a practice uh, on what they should be focusing on first? What are those first steps they should do?
2: Yeah, so one of the first things um, that I look at and actually both as, as someone you know, working for a payer and when I was with a provider group, it's really making sure that there is engagement across the provider organization to undertake this journey. And most importantly, across the physicians and the organization, entering these relationships will affect the way that care is delivered. Um, physicians will feel it, and they will feel it the most during that transition stage when you are providing both fee for service and value-based care. So it is important that everybody is, or you know almost everybody, unanimous opinions are are hard to get but that the majority of the organization is fully engaged in doing the work that is gonna come their way. Uh, Second, I would make sure that the organization really understands what they are agreeing to do from a contract perspective. Spend time, and not just in the negotiation stage where you're arguing back and forth about what are the words in the contract, Uh, What I find is typically once you execute the contract and it gets filed in uh, two different file drawers or now virtual um, systems, that's when the hard work begins. So it's really spend the time understanding what are your responsibilities, what are the payers' responsibilities and how do you both work together to succeed. And then, um, and sometimes I feel like this is the most important point is making sure that you develop a population health model that makes sense for your practice. You do not need to do everything on, on day one. Um, there's a lot of information out there, and this is where the overwhelming part can come in, where you can hear about things that different practices did to be successful. And if you start at the beginning trying to do everything that someone said was you know, successful, It can be overwhelming, and it is really important to kind of step back and say, what is the thing we're going to do first? What is second? What is third? Um, Some of these organizations have been doing this for 15, 20 years. Um, Even five to 10, you're not going to get there on day one, but have a plan for what makes sense for you to tackle, and usually that helps you be more successful than trying to do everything at once.
0: I really like that you mentioned earlier that there's customization that that's available. So, so that a practice doesn't go into that and make missteps, how how would you suggest they go about developing a strategic plan to kind of carve out what their customized version of value-based care should look like? Start
2: with um, some broad goals of. What are the things that you want to accomplish? What are, you know, either some of the outcomes metrics um, that you want to impact um, you know, patient visit metrics? So kind of set some goals for yourself. And then make sure that whatever goals you set, that you are taking those goals and making them part of your workflow. And of your day-to-day operations or how patients get seen. Um, you know, think through the differences of what does having one workflow for value-based patients versus a slightly different workflow for fee-for-service patients. What does that mean? How are you going to tackle that? Um, then things like uh, and I would say this is one of the, the, you know, this could be one of the key things that you think about first is how will your practice engage with patients differently? Um, and here's one simple example of, you know, how you engage differently with a with a practice. If you think about a fee for service practice and how appointments get booked and patients get seen. Typically, in the fee-for-service world, uh, uh, an appointment is booked when a patient calls um, and is looking to schedule an appointment with a provider. And as a provider group, you typically measure your success in doing that by how quickly did you answer the phone, Uh, did you get the patient scheduled with the doctor that they wanted, did you get them scheduled in the, you know, appropriate amount of time, you know, did you have it? was your next available appointment in a reasonable time frame? Those are some of the metrics you look at, you know, in a fee for service world. As you start transitioning to value based care, you start thinking about a patient panel. Um, and you don't think about you see them when they pick up the phone and call you to schedule an appointment. You have to start thinking about outreaching to schedule appointments. So most health plans will provide you your member roster at the beginning of the month. Um, You have to make outbound calls to introduce your practice to your attributed member if you haven't seen them before and get them scheduled to see the PCP. You might have a, a process for seeing patients that you haven't seen in a while. So that slight change from you receive calls to you make outbound calls to engage this patient panel. Um, it, it is an operational change that you make uh, for value-based um, care. And then the, the another area that you know needs a lot of focus is understanding what data is going to be provided uh, by the payer in what frequency, and then how are you going to, to use it. Um, Some payers don't provide enough data, some payers provide a lot of data, but sometimes it isn't actionable information. So you've gotta spend time figuring out how are you gonna go through the data that's provided? How are you gonna make it actionable for your group? And then sometimes if you can't get there, ask payers for help. We are very invested in making sure that our relationships is successful, um, we believe that making you successful makes us successful and ensures better outcomes for our members. So, so we'll work through it with you.
0: Well, Arita, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing these insights today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: One way to address value-based care is through a team-based approach. Here to talk about this model is Michael O'Connell, Senior Vice President of Operations at Stanford HealthCare, where he works with 1,200 providers. Now, Michael, we know that not everyone listening will have a team that size, so how does a practice decide their ideal number of players?
3: One of the things that we've recognized, Daniel, is as much as we believe that standardization uh, helps to create efficiencies as well as uh, better outcomes, that there's also the ability to do some customization. So in polarity management, it's not an either or, it's both. And so in this case, our team-based care approach is a standardized approach with six different elements. And there are opportunities for our providers to do a little bit of customization because there's certain providers that want to be more involved in efforts while others are very comfortable in terms of partnering with their teams. And so uh, in terms of the right numbers, um, we've developed a centralized health information management, um, department where, uh, HIMSS people used to be located at the local levels. And, uh, now we've centralized it all within one location and it's helped us to achieve phenomenal productivity, efficiency, standardization, and, uh, uh turnaround times that are phenomenal where before when it was decentralized, uh, we didn't have that level of, uh, of rigor and uh, outcomes. Also, in terms of medical assistance, uh, it also depends on how many patients that provider sees. So you can't see one MA or two MAs. Uh, it depends on how many patients that provider sees. And then uh, uh, in terms of management, uh, management uh, needs to make sure that they're appropriately spending time to be able to audit or review and support teams of individuals. So uh, we, we don't have a prescriptive amount, but basically it would be one medical assistant for a provider. If the provider's seeing more patients, it could be more. And for HIMSS, we have 42, um, 42 health information management staff that are supporting uh, about 320 providers throughout uh, the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Right. Now, earlier you had mentioned the objectives and goals of the team. What are those, and how are those decided? So there's four, There's six different elements of what we consider to be team pace, team-based
3: care, and one of them, uh, the first one is uh, the pre-visit prep. How do we make sure that when the patient is seen, Uh, And if we, if the patient is seven days prior to the appointment, our medical assistants are going through the chart and going through the electronic medical record and going through other medical records to be able to make sure that everything is appropriately prepped. Uh, Then we huddle. We need to make sure that the provider and the medical assistant are huddling. And what that means is that they're communicating at the beginning of a four-hour clinic and then after lunch, uh, huddling again for the afternoon clinic. Uh, so that they're communicating and anticipating what are some of the different things that they need to address. Then there's the patient rooming. How do we make sure that the patients are are roomed and that there's everything consistent from uh, supplies in the room to uh, the uh, the different things that are expected uh, to be able to communicate with the patient uh, before they see the provider. Then there's the handoff. How does the medical assistant hand off the information that they've learned from the patient over to the physician, so that they're not necessarily communicating uh, things uh, again with the patient that the patient's already shared? And then there's the in-basket, meaning that the um, uh, in the electronic medical re- in the electronic medical record, you've got your uh, your inbox, you've got your emails. And as uh, we have over 75% of our patients are connected uh, through our electronic medical record and they can send the provider an email. And so the uh, medical assistant has the opportunity to work with the provider of what they can handle in that inbox. What are the things that they can handle in their email? And what's some of the offline work management? And then the final piece is abstraction. And what abstraction means is putting a data element in a certain uh, component of electronic medical record so that you can uh, run reports. So if someone has a mammogram, uh, there's a place where you can abstract that information to put that into the system so you can run reports on how many of our patients have had a mammogram or uh, if someone's had a colonoscopy. Uh, When do they have a colonoscopy and when do they need to have one again? So we're taking that information and abstracting it into the system. And so that's where our HIMSS people get involved, where they have that opportunity. So those six elements are really that recipe for that team-based care. And and again, we did it through a phased integration. We selected a region. uh, We looked at uh, co-creating this with the providers. And it was really slow and steady. Uh, And what happens, Daniel, is that word travels fast, Uh, good and bad. And so if you're doing a really good job, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're achieving success when the doctors are saying, well, when am I next? I want to be next instead of saying, I don't want to be next. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's by having the administrator and, you know, managers, our education team working together to be able to support the medical assistants, the HIMSS people, as well as the providers. Uh, again, it was a real recipe for success.
0: Right. We, we've been talking about the positives related to this team-based approach. What are some of the biggest challenges then? What's, what are some of the sticking points that you guys have seen and implementing it where you are? I would say that the challenges are that, uh, this can't be a,
3: uh, a top down, uh, uh Uh, initiative that is forced upon the providers. This is something that the providers need to see value in. We had done that previously where we had developed a model and it was, it came down much more as uh, something that they had to do and there wasn't a buy-in and a consensus. And so instead we took a pause and said, how can we work together and, and what do you need? And so the co-creation was an important part of this. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, even with the co-creation and we met with our providers and said, OK, um, this week we're going to do clinic A and next week we're going to do clinic B. And they all were on board. Uh, one of the challenges was uh, on day one, uh, doctors said, well, wait a minute. I What are you doing? I, I don't want to do a huddle or what do you mean the medical assistance in my in basket? And so it's like, well, we had talked about this. Oh, I didn't think that that really applied to me. So, really getting into the weeds, really supporting the providers to show them what's done. Because again, this is about trusting your staff and respecting them and being confident that they're not doctors, they're not residents, they're not fellows, they're medical assistants. And so, through continuous learning, how can we support? our staff so that they can better support the doctors. So again, the challenge was not assuming that uh, it's going to be a cookie cutter approach that's going to apply to all and uh, making sure that we can do a little bit of customization, but not too much because as we have staff that rotate in different clinics and with different providers, there needs to be a consistent framework and uh, really helping them to be able to see that uh, this is helping to advance patient care overall.
0: Right. To make the team effective, have you guys looked at the work life balance? Have you factored that into it?
3: We are in California, Daniel. And so <laughs> it is very much about work life balance. And we're in you know, beautiful areas with mountains and hiking. And so our providers and our staff, they want to enjoy the outdoors. People are very active here. And so, yes, there's very much of a work life balance. 60% of our providers are part-time, which means that they don't work a for a full 40-hour shift. And so that's, that, that's a challenge as well, in that how do we staff for uh, clinics that don't have doctors that necessarily work full-time? But we've made it work, and it means that we need to be very flexible and uh, uh, work with the schedules that we have. And again, our, our burnout rate for our providers is about half of the national average. And so that speaks a lot to uh, all the work that's been done at Stanford to be able to work with the providers to ensure that they're not burned out. It's it's still uh, at, you know less than 25%, which is still too high, but it's uh, you know there's a lot of work to be able to uh, seek uh, appreciation, gratitude, and uh, and support for uh, all the work that uh, goes on behind the scenes, so that the providers can effectively see the patients uh, with the team that's going to support them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how long have you had the team-based approach in place? And since that time, what surprised you about it? You've got the data now to kind of study it and see what's working and what's not. And w- what has surprised you? Uh, I think the
3: thing that surprised me was uh, uh, the uh, one of our staff calls it amnesia. That, that people, you know, ask for something and then be careful what they ask for because then they'll get it. And so that amnesia, uh, that when, you know, it, 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 it's a journey to collaborate and it takes time to, you know, this isn't something that you say that, well, we're gonna do this during the month of July or August. That it really takes time to co-create this with the providers and staff. And that we really need an open mind uh, and, and recognize the end game of, of why we're doing this. We're not doing this because we've been told to do it. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the, the thing that surprised me was how well we did in terms of our results, that uh, our outcomes uh, were, quite, um, were quite remarkable through the team-based care to be able to see the outcomes of the triple aim. This isn't a quick fix. And it's really a change in culture. And so those are the kinds of things that I, I think were you know, some of the key takeaways that really helped me to see that, uh, uh, that, that, that this is something which, uh, uh, in order to really Im- embed this in each one of the practices, it's going to take some time to be able to uh, achieve.
0: Michael, thank you so much. Thank you
3: for the opportunity to be able to share today.
0: Let's take a look at value-based care on a smaller scale. Dr. David Hatfield has successfully made the transition with his family practice, Hatfield Medical Group. Dr. Hatfield, can you give us some perspective on why you made the switch?
1: You know, for me, we had to. We were at a breaking point with with that churn and burn fee-for-service model where physicians were starting to burn out. And at the time, we didn't know anything about the quadruple aim, which the last part of that quadruple aim is care team well-being, and physicians are part of that care team. So even though physicians were being paid well, we were seeing providers in our medical group start to burn out and just experience unhappiness with their profession, unhappiness with their day. And so we knew that we had to move to a a slower pace and align our contracts with more more value and align them with more quality and thankfully about that time that we really were starting to struggle with which how we were going to improve provider burnout that's when you really started to see payers start to want to align with medical groups like ours in a more value-based model which value-based really is just providing higher quality care, better access to care. It's getting population health metrics embedded in your practice, which is really just getting the patient the right care, the right place at the right time. And as we, as we started to engage those payers, and in particular, the first payer that, that, that I recall that we really had detailed conversations about was Humana. And they approached us and, and we approached them right about the same time they wanted to have value based agreement in place and we wanted to so we approached them we put it in place and honestly when we started it hatfield medical at hatfield medical we didn't know what we were going to need to do necessarily to make that that relationship be successful but we quickly learned that it was going to require us to understand the different levers that that allow you to be successful in a population health uh, value-based contract, and the most important lever was going to be provider well-being. Our providers needed to stop working at the pace that they were. We needed to start to do the the different things that allow you to be successful in a value-based contract. and And primarily that is spending more time with the patient. So spending more time with the patient allows you to, allows you to address all their chronic disease conditions document them, make sure that we are treating them appropriately. And sometimes treating them is, a, is not necessarily you taking the ball and running with it, but it's getting them, them to the right specialist that can handle that care. But at the end of the day, it's getting the person the right care at the right place at the right time versus just referring them to a specialist, just sending them to the ER or not having opening, open uh, appointments on your schedule And having your receptionist tell them, we can't get them in today, they have to go to the emergency room, when they very well could have been seen in your office. So for us, it started out with one little simple contract, and it quickly, like a wildfire, moved to the other contracts. When we saw that it was the right way to practice medicine and that our providers were giving us feedback that... This, this is how we want to practice medicine. We want more time with the patients and we want to be able to document, we want to be able to document the visit better, have more time for documentation. And again, it all lined up because as we did that, we, are, we were able to bill, the, the codes were a little higher, the E M codes were a little higher because we were spending more time and we prevented, we reduced total medical spend and we, got, we were able to get some of that savings by keeping the folks out of the hospital.
0: Do you think getting out of that churn and burn cycle has helped you become a better doctor? And if so, how has it done that?
1: No question. So we, we used to always say that prior to entering into value-based contracts, we were a busy practice in the, in the East Valley. And, and our name had been in the East Valley for a long time. And we used to always kind of hang our hat on the fact that, look, we're really busy. You can't get in to see us. That means we're good doctors because we're really busy. And and honestly, that that just wasn't true. It's just because there's there was such an access to care um, shortage in there was such an access to care shortage in our community that. I, any doctor was busy. If they, if they were just reasonably nice and had a reasonable bedside manner, they were busy. Um, and I would say that when we, when we switched to the value-based model, we were able to take more time with the patients. We were able to um, manage their chronic disease conditions better. And it wasn't just a chief complaint visit. A lot of times we would say, oh, you, you, you have time for two complaints today, and then we've got to reschedule the other two or three. Well, as, as, as family docs and advanced practice providers and internists, all of us that are out there in the trenches in, in outpatient medicine know that patients come in with, with diabetes, with congestive heart failure, with peripheral vascular disease, all these other comorbidities that exist with that chief complaint. So they might come in for a simple sinus infection, but the diabetes, the congestive heart failure, all of the other chronic disease conditions that that patient presents with probably need to be evaluated, addressed, and considered as you treat that sinus infection. Because a sinus infection in a 67-year-old with a lot of different chronic disease conditions is very different than a sinus infection in a 23-year-old otherwise healthy adult. It can be a very quick, simple visit. And so it's allowed us to take more time with the patients so that we look at the patient as a whole. And 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 sometimes I'll say to the patient, are you sure you don't have any more questions? Because I have time for you today and I want to address all your concerns. And I'll even can encourage my patients to bring in a list and I'll write notes next to the list. And so that when they go home, And they wonder, oh, I didn't talk to Dr. Hatfield about that today. Oh, yeah, I did. He wrote right next here to the list. And I try to do it legibly. Sometimes that's a difficult task. But I'll I'll just write, here's what we're doing with that problem. Here's what we're doing with this problem. And I'll I'll write it on their little list. Now, we have a printout we give them, too. But sometimes it's just fun for them to see it on their own little list that, that I addressed everything. And, again, it's because at the end of the day, we create the time. For our providers to address
0: those concerns. Right. Now, do you have a personal interaction with either a patient or a group of patients that you'd like to share with us where you've really witnessed a win win from both the provider side of it and from the patient side of it?
1: I do. I, I can think of one particular patient, and and uh, obviously due to HIPAA, we won't we won't say it. We'll protect the innocent. Right. He he actually wouldn't mind if I did because he loves us because he's a poster child for Hatfield Medical Group.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He um, th- this gentleman in our churn and burn model, he's been a patient of ours for for some years. He 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 would miss appointments. He came in very infrequently. He went to the ER. He overutilized the emergency room on a high level, and because he's he had many chronic disease conditions, when he hit that emergency room, a lot of times those ER docs would just—they're busy too. I get it; they're they're working at at uh, churn and burn model, you know, high high volume uh, models as well. They they would just kind of throw their arms in there and say, "Hey, this this gentleman needs to just go in the hospital. I don't feel comfortable sending him home because." if I send him home, he's just going to come back to the emergency room again. We started, we, 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 we picked him up on our radar and he was part of a value based contract, uh, with one of our early, our our early value based contracts. We found him and we, and we knew he was our patient because we had seen him from time to time. We reached out to him and we said, Dr. Hatfield would like to see you weekly in our office every week we scheduled an appointment for him every week. And if he didn't come to the appointment, we called him and said, Hey, you missed your appointment. Can you come down today or can you come down tomorrow? When can you get here? And we saw him every week. We, I, I see, I still see him every week. I think it's backed off to about every month now because mm-hmm. we've, cause now we manage his chronic disease conditions. He's much happier he gets the right care at the right place at the right time. So instead of bouncing to the emergency room and then getting admitted to the hospital and they change his medicines up and he's getting CT scans and getting all these unnecessary um, studies done, he sees me once a month and he knows he can come see me every week if he needed to. And now he, the, the key to it is, no, they, no, no patient will care how much you know until they know how much you care. Everybody says that saying. I get it. We've all heard it. But when you really put it in practice, it, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And this gentleman, he sings not only our praises in our medical group, but the, mo- the most important piece of that is his life is better. He feels better. And I get that there was some mental health behind it. There's some physical health. There was a lot of factors that drove him to the ER. But the biggest factor that drove him to the ER is because he didn't really know that Hatfield Medical Group cared about him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And now that, the, now that everything aligns, yeah, we, we're, we're more involved in the weeds and we do panel management. We reach out to those patients that don't come see us. We reach out to them and say, hey, come see us. We care. We want to make sure that you're getting that you're getting your breast cancer screening done, that you're getting your colorectal cancer screening done, that we're managing your hemoglobin A1C, you're taking your blood pressure medicines, that we're getting you to the right specialist that you need to be seeing for that condition. And we want to be able to do your annual wellness visit every year to make sure that you have living will, power of attorney, that we want to be able to do screening for depression, screening for substance abuse. Again, it's a whole different mentality. Fee for service, we waited for them to show up on our door and we knew that they would because we were just doing cheap complaint medicine. This mentality is completely different. It's panel management, it's going and helping that one patient who's struggling, it's going and getting the one.
0: Now, Va- moving to value-based care has been a big success for you. We've talked about that in a previous podcast, but it can't be without challenges. So where have those pain points been in moving from you know, fee-for-service to value-based care? So
1: by far and away, the biggest pain point is, is practicing as a value-based medical group but not yet having the payers align with it. In other words, you will, medical groups out there, you will implement a lot of the strategies and a lot of the levers to put value-based principles in your practice before you get paid. That is hard to do. And you have to trust that if you do it, eventually, the money will come. It's it, You have to do it like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And, and honest to goodness, that's what we did. We trusted. Now, we did have one contract in place that allowed us to say, okay, that's the contract we're going to try to align with. So you do have to reach out to those payers. That is the most difficult piece, is getting in front of your payers, whether it's whether it's just traditional Medicare with supplement through the AC, account through an accountable care organization, or through it it's through Blue Cross Blue Shield commercial, or uh, your Humana Medicare Advantage. But you've got to get in front of your payers, or in front of the the IPA that manages your payers, and you have to say these are the things that we are doing to align with value based. And we want to get paid for those things. We're going to implement chronic care management. We're going to, we're going to start to do annual wellness visits on a high level and create a template that allows us to get paid very well in a fee for service world for that template. But at the end of the day, the reason why we're doing it is because that, that visit allows us to be able to align with all of the value based metrics that we're trying to try and do, uh, see how well we're doing on. Mm-hmm. And and at the end of the day, it's it's very data robust. We like to say at our medical group that without data, you're just a person with another opinion. We don't need more opinions about how we're doing things. We just need data that says that this is how well we're doing keeping our patients out of the hospital and reducing total medical medical spend. When you take that story to the payers And say, we've created access to care. We have chronic care managers. We are reaching out to our our patients that are are winding up in the ER frequently. We're doing annual wellness visits for our Medicare age population. We're doing all kinds of HEDIS screening and measures and monitoring it and holding our providers accountable. When you do those things and implement them in your practice, payers will take notice. They, They have to because they're all dying to find groups that will play in the sandbox with them.
0: Dr. Hatfield, thanks for joining us again.
1: Thank you for having me, and, and, and we love our relations, the, the time that we get to spend with you.
0: As we've heard, switching to value-based care can be very beneficial, but it's not without risk. Here to talk about that side of the equation is Andrea Herto. Andrea is the Chief Operating Officer of Bancura Health Solutions.
4: Well, taking on risk from a provider perspective requires transformation. You can expect to do things the same way you did in a fee-for-service world and uh, truly deliver value or be successful. So this transformation requires a strategic change within the organization as well as a realignment of resources, infrastructures, and partnerships Uh, and overall provider engagement in order to be successful. So the risk lies in the ability of the organization to transform. Um, And they're required to have payer contract transformation, obviously care transformation, and most importantly, data transformation. And you'll hear me talk a lot more about the significant impact, insight into data, can have on success in a value-based care contract
0: does the data analysis then does it help you um judge and and view the risk like which risk or you're willing to take on which ones it's just too much you need to step away from it or reevaluate that situation
4: yeah the data will tell us everything the data will tell us where the risk actually lies, especially if you have access to benchmarking performance data, where you can see how the population that you are engaging in risk sharing with is performing compared to a standard benchmark opportunity. Then you need to dig down and identify, is this actionable or not as a provider uh, in a risk sharing network? Can we do something about this? Or what areas can we do something to, um, to improve the overall cost and quality of care? Um, once we've identified what's actionable, then you need to come up with a plan on how to address that uh, potential opportunity within a risk-bearing arrangement. And finally, once you come up with the plan, you need to continuously evaluate, is your plan working? And I think that's where some provider groups have fallen short in managing risk is they put the plan in place but then there's no positive feedback circle is are all these interventions that we're doing or infrastructure changes or transformative changes really having the desired impact that we expect it to or should we take our de- our resources deploy them elsewhere or veer on our operational strategy um in order to really maximize the um outcomes that we're looking for from mm-hmm. the hard work that these providers are putting into managing these risk lines
0: mm-hmm. so do you have an example you want to share with us where you've taken a, a, a population health uh, situation and, and helped solve that problem or optimize that problem through value-based care?
4: Yeah, I do. Uh, so we have a large um, client that Boncura works with, um, which is also a multi-specialty physician group taking on provider risk. And this is a Medicare Advantage population and when you're managing a Medicare population you certainly have to be cognizant of strategic interventions to manage your most costly and most susceptible patient base and that would be the multi-chronic condition uh, patients who have some social determinants of health sort of impacting their ability to seek care and be compliant with their care so Data analytics A helps you identify who these patients are. Who are your patients that you're taking risk for that have multiple chronic diseases, that have above average uh, utilization, especially avoidable utilization, which would be something like an unnecessary ED visit, but the patient went to the emergency department because their primary care office wasn't open, or there was no other access point into the system later in the evening. Um, And identifying these patients and really trying to create a strong primary care relationship with a targeted subset um, of a patient population that you're at risk for. So um, DuPage Medical Group created a breakthrough care center clinic model to serve the highest risk patients within their Medicare Advantage risk population. These are doctors specially trained to deal with elderly, more frail patients with multiple chronic diseases, as well as social um, barriers to care compliance. It's a completely different model of delivering care. It's high intensity. The office visits are often expensive in length. There are capabilities within the clinic that can help avoid an ED visit perhaps um, we have the ability at the breakthrough care center to deliver certain infusions often elderly patients are simply dehydrated and they go to the emergency room um get infused um, often results in admission those can be avoided if you can provide these types of service in a more cost-effective outpatient um, environment but it's costly to provide those so that's where i'm getting at that you have to do the risk analysis on the interventions that you put into place the breakthrough care center actually has utilization performance statistics very near what we see in the rest of the population, yet are much higher acuity and have a much higher risk factor attributed to them. So that tells us that these patients should be utilizing more, but simply are not due to deploying other types of resources that may be A little bit more costly up front, but in the long run, definitely deliver value to the patient population.
0: Um, One of the things you're talking about is, is, you know, one of the main goals of value-based care that's delivering lower cost and higher quality care. You explained beautifully the higher quality care, uh, but it does seem costly. So how do you bring those costs down? Is that by working with the patients up front so they don't have the exorbitant cost down the road? Is that, is that the goal here?
4: Yeah, so it, it's a multi-fragmented approach to um, targeting certain interventions To certain levels of risk within a population. And and again, it starts with risk stratifying and knowing who your patient population is. So 5% of your patient population generally consumes 50% of the medical expense. So that's where I was certainly illustrating where a higher intensity model will probably be significantly more cost effective because it certainly won't be the equivalent of 50% of the medical um, expense targeting in at that patient population. Then keeping an eye on what we call the rising risk population. Who are these patients that if we don't keep them as healthy as possible despite illness or encourage multiple touch points with a primary care physician have the potential of becoming one of these high risk uh, patients who, unfortunately, because of their overutilization and their multiple chronic disease, you start to see an impact on the quality It's providing the quality care up front to prevent um, one of your patients to becoming one of these top 5%. Um, and then it's also looking at what resources you're deploying and where. Do you need to deploy a clinical resource, which can be more cost effective in a wellness state? Or do we look for technology and use technology to help identify the potential outliers and focus the clinical team on the outliers and providing more wellness focus on the patients that are certainly right now, not high utilizers of healthcare, but making sure that we prevent them from doing that moving forward. And certainly deploying the clinical, uh, more costly resources, as I explained in the breakthrough model, at your highest cost patients. You can't do the same interventions across the entire population and uh, expect to succeed in value-based care because the, the financial model just won't work there. So you have to be very strategic as to where you deploy what resources and obviously more high-intensity resources as the risk of the population that you're managing increases.
0: Andrea, thanks so much for joining us and sharing these insights on value-based care.
4: My pleasure.
0: Well, that's gonna do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Stericycle for sponsoring today's show. Also, thanks to our guest, David Hatfield, Arita Roman, Andrea Hurto and Michael O'Connell, all of today's guests can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Did you miss early bird registration? Don't worry, we have you covered. Use the code POD200 while registering and save $200. Visit mgmacom easy 19 for more information and to register for the conference. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.